Aqualads and Aqualasses, welcome to a new endeavor here in the Aqua Cave. Uh, it's the holiday season. We're heading ever towards Halloween, which of course is the best time of the year. And what better way to celebrate than to take a little bit of time out of our weeks leading up to Halloween and present to you some chapters from the Holy Text. That, of course, being WWE's Journey into Darkness, the biographical tale of Glenn, Mark, Paul, and Katie. That being Kane, the Undertaker, Paul Bear, and the poor deceased Katie Vick. It's a story as old as time, a song as old as rhyme, Beauty and the Beast. That being Glenn and Katie. We're calling this endeavor Reading Cane Bow. And I, being Johnny C, am going to take some time out of this busy season to share with you, as frequently as I can, leading all the way up to Halloween and the end of the season, some chapters, some readings, some of the words of the holy text, Journey into Darkness. Journey along with us, won't you? Today, we bring you the prologue. Journey into Darkness, a novel by Michael Chiapetta. Book One, Cursed. Prologue. You freak, Denton said. Glenn hit him in the face. Hey! Denton looked surprised. Glenn punched him in the stomach. Ow! Denton said and bent over double. Glenn knocked him down to the ground and twisted the boy's arm behind his back. He reached into Denton's coat pocket and took back the dollar Denton had stolen from him this morning. His lunch money. Glenn took the rest of the money in Denton's coat, too. Just for good measure. About four dollars and change and a couple of crumpled up bills. About a week's worth of lunch money. And since Denton had been taking Glenn's lunch money for most of the last month, he figured he was still a little short on the deal. Hey, Denton said again, give that back. Shut up, whiner, Glenn said. He turned and glared at the rest of Denton's gang, the sixth graders who hung out with Denton Young, who did his every wish because Denton's dad was some kind of big shot on the Marfa City Council, balled his hands into fists, and took a step forward. Anybody else want to fight? The other boys, three of them, whose names he couldn't remember at the moment, not surprisingly, considering that he was dreaming, shook their heads and backed away from him. Glenn snarled. They ran. He smirked, watching them go. Not so tough now, were they? Not so ready to make fun of him because of his freaky disease, because his parents wouldn't let him play sports, because his eyes were two different colors, or because he was a second grader. Uh-uh. These were chicken-shit cowards, just like Mark had said. A hand fell on his shoulder. A big hand. Glenn turned, and there was Mark, smiling down at him. Nice, Glenn's brother said, smacking his own fist into his other hand. Show those chicken-shit cowards a thing or two like I did that punk maven. Yeah. Let them know not to mess with a Callaway, even one in the second grade. Yeah. Of course, Mark 
wasn't in second grade. Mark was in fifth grade. Everyone at Marfa Elementary was scared of Mark. For real scared. Not just because he was so big, bigger than anyone else in the school, but because he had no fear. Not of anyone. Not of anything. Not even of death. A couple weeks back, right before lunch, two kids from sixth grade had quartered him on the playground, gotten him down on the ground, started pounding on him. Glenn heard what was happening, ran out of the school just in time to see Mark lying there on his back, not moving. The two sixth graders just standing there, laughing. Glenn thought for a second that maybe his brother was dead or something. Then... Mark sat up all of a sudden, and then, like he wasn't hurt at all, got to his feet. It started after the sixth graders. They did it again, beat him down to the ground, and again, he sat right up. And this time, the sixth graders weren't laughing. And this time, Mark got in a few good shots of his own. The sixth graders tried to leave the playground. He went after them and got them on the ground. First one, then the other. After an encounter with Mark's soup bones, they didn't get up so easy. Mark got suspended for a week. Nobody messed with Mark anymore. Not after that. Whereas Glenn, everybody messed with him. Because they knew he couldn't fight back. Except now they wouldn't mess with him. Now they'd know he could fight too. That there was a little bit of Mark Calloway in him as well. Guess I owe you an apology, son. Glenn turned again to his right and saw his dad ambling towards him, shaking his head, smiling to himself, and smoking a cigarette. Smoking a cigarette. Glenn frowned. His dad had quit smoking two months ago. Big celebration. Mom made a special dinner. Old family recipe. It didn't seem right for his dad to be smoking again. After all of that, even if this was just a dream. I guess I was wrong, Randall Calloway said, taking a big drag in, letting a big puff out. I guess maybe I shouldn't have stopped you from fighting before. Doesn't look like you hurt yourself, and it seems like you made an important point with those boys. He nodded down the street, and Glenn saw that Denton Young had gotten up off the ground and was running after his buddies trying to get as far away as he could from the Callaway clan. Sounds good. Guess maybe your ma now should rethink the whole thing about you playing sports, too, Randall said. Really, Dad? Would I lie to you? Randall smiled and took another puff off his cigarette. The smoke blew right in Glenn's face. And Glenn smelled it really strong. And he coughed, and he tossed in his sleep as he began to wake up. What a pussy. He still smelled the smoke, though. That, he guessed, unlike his revenge on Denton Young or his dad's decision to let Glenn play sports, was for real. Glenn rolled over in his bed, not opening his eyes yet, a little bit angry and just a little bit disappointed in his father. Dad said he was going to quit. He promised us, and he'd been true to that promise for the whole summer. And now, 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 now... Glenn decided he'd have to start hiding Dad's cigarettes again. Whoa, that's kind of a dick move, Glenn. 
boy, did he get mad when Glenn did that last time, said a seven-year-old kid, had no idea how hard it was to be a grown-up, and that the cigarettes helped him relax. And what was the harm? Well, Glenn knew what the harm was. Smoking killed you. And besides, Dad's it-helps-me-relax excuse was the same one he'd used with the drinking. And how much easier was Dad to be around now that he'd quit the drinking? A lot, was how much. Boy, Glenn thought. The smell is really strong now. Dad was probably smoking right outside Glenn's window. Which made sense. Glenn's room was way in the back of the house. Which was not just the family's home, but their place of business. The Callaway Funeral Parlor. The business... The big room where they held the services, the little receiving room right off the front door, and the bigger sitting area on the other side of the entryway occupied all of the ground floor, except for Glenn's room. Down in the basement, they had the supply room and the work room and the rest of the family. Glenn's mom and dad and Mark lived on the second floor, which was probably why dad had come all the way down here to smoke. It was as far away from his bedroom as he could get. He was probably right outside the window, lighting up. Except now that Glenn thought about it, hadn't he shut that window before going to sleep? Well, obviously not, genius, or he wouldn't be smelling smoke. Get out of bed, Glenn told himself. Go to the window. Don't make a big scene now. Now is not the time for a big scene. Just go tell Dad that if he has to smoke, not to do it so close to the house. How hard could that be? Glenn rolled over and opened his eyes. The smoke was everywhere. Way, way too much of it to be coming from a cigarette. Well then, Glenn, you're just not smoking the right cigarettes, Johnny C. said. He sat bolt upright in bed. The smoke was coming from the hall, billowing into his room like steam out of a sauna. The house was on fire! The house is on fire! The house is on fire! Glenn gasped in shock and accidentally took in a big mouthful of that smoke. It caught in his throat, and he started coughing, hacking, just the way Dad used to. Good old smoker's cough. That's why you have to quit, Dad. That's why. Glenn couldn't catch his breath. He couldn't stop coughing. Could barely even think over that sound and the roar of the fire coming from out in the hall. His eyes teared up like a bitch. What do I do? Oh, God, what do I do? I don't want to die. I don't want to die. He was just a kid. Kids weren't supposed to die like this, except they did all the time. (laughs) He'd seen it on the news more than one time. The last couple of weeks ago, weird sentence, a girl up in the Alpine had been in her bath by herself, hit her head on the faucet, and drowned while her mom was in the kitchen making cookies. I think about that dead girl all the time because she was in the tub, which means she had to be naked. Holy shit. Moving on, though. It happened, but not to him. Please, please, not to me. I don't want to die. What do I do? What do I do? Don't panic. Get low to the ground. Find an exit. Glenn heard Mrs. Prescott's voice in his head as clear as if she was standing right next to him, whispering in his ear. Mrs. Prescott was his second grade teacher at Marfa Elementary where they had to do fire drills once a month. They weren't real serious fire drills, because this is Texas, after all. That's what Mark said anyway. In fifth grade, they had serious fire drills. You know, that maven. 
I tried to teach him about the fire drills, but he just didn't take them seriously enough. But they always made Glenn a little nervous anyway. The big alarm bell clanging. Mrs. Prescott leading them down the hall in single file, being strict, strict, strict about the no-talking rule, and always asking one of them what they would do if they were in a real fire. Sometimes the kid, she asked, had the answer. Sometimes he didn't. But Mrs. Prescott always repeated her saying anyway, Don't panic. Get low to the ground. Find an exit. Don't panic. Okay, he was not panicking already, right? So that one was taken care of. Number two, get low to the ground. Well, Glenn rolled out of the bed, right onto the floor, slammed into it so hard that the night table next to his bed bounced. His vision blurred for a second. It didn't hurt a bit, though. There was a dirty t-shirt on the floor next to him, covered in his own seed. He remembered something else from their fire drill all at once and picked up the shirt. He wrapped it around his mouth, inhaling his own seed. And he wrapped it around his nose as well, like an old cowboy bandit. It helped block the smoke, helped him breathe a little better. Okay, one and two were done. Now number three, let's find an exit. The window, Glenn thought. The window behind him, maybe. He started crawling towards it, dragging himself across the floor, digging in with his elbows, pulling himself along, leaving dark red streaks in the dirty beige carpet as he moved. Blood. So he had heard himself falling off the bed. So what? The sight of blood didn't bother him. He had a total disconnect from blood, a total disconnect from pain. Those things were just words to him, words he could not spell. When Glenn Calloway got hurt, he never felt anything. He reached the window, grabbed the sill, and pulled himself up. The fire was in his room now, he could tell, because the smoke was getting darker and thicker. It was getting harder to breathe again without coughing. The window wouldn't budge. Glenn would have to break it. Mom wouldn't like that a bit. Now she's probably going to be more pissed off that her house is burned down, Glenn, but you think what you want. Glenn's hands fell away from the window. Mom! Dad! Mark Taker! Weren't they upstairs? Were they trapped in the house? He spun around, looking for the red lights of the alarm clock at his bed. Maybe Mom and Dad had gone out. After all, Mom was a drunk, and Dad had been visiting local whores for years now. They had started doing that these last couple weeks, going out like a couple, letting Mark and him stay home alone by themselves. His mom said Mark was old enough to be responsible. Maybe even get a job to start pulling his weight around here. Because after all, Mark, you're a lazy bum. So if it was still early, maybe they were. Glenn's eyes found the clock on the wall. One. Thirty. His stomach sank. Even if they'd gone out before, they were home now. Everyone was home. Even little Rocket, the pooch. But maybe they'd gotten out already. Maybe they were waiting for him right outside his window. Maybe. No, they hadn't gotten out. Glenn knew that for a fact, no way any of them would have left him in here to burn up. Well, Glenn, I don't know. You don't sound like much fun to be around. You're kind of a bitch. They were upstairs. He was sure of it. His heart sank. It was up to him, Glenn realized. He had to wake the others. He had to get them out. Don't panic. Stay low. Find an exit. No, he whispered. 
I have to find my family. Oh, Glenn, he's decided to find his family. Stay with us, we'll be back. And we're back. He turned around and looked into the heart of the fire. It was in his room now, burning up the side of one wall, burning his posters. There went Nolan Ryan and Danny White and Darth Vader. And don't forget Magnum P.I. Oh no, there goes Barney, the dinosaur. Holy shit, it looks like no more Mr. Dakimbe Matumbo on the wall. One leg of the dresser was on fire too. But more importantly, the whole door frame was outlined in flames. And beyond it, the main room where they had held the funeral services looked like one of those pictures of hell the deacon was always pointing out to them in Bible school. Big red and orange tongues of fire. Fists of fuel, fists of fire and fury rained down from the rattlesnake as well. Beyond the big room, he saw the staircase leading up to the second floor was burning too. Find an exit, you stupid fuck! Shut up, Miss Prescott, Glenn thought to himself. You just shut up right there, you stupid woman. I'll teach you some learning things or two. He took a deep breath and ran straight through the door. Straight through the main room, past the burning old upright piano, the stacks of folding wooden chairs that were now stacks of flame, past the bookcases full of songbooks and Bibles, and out into the hallway to the base of the stairs, and he looked down at his right arm. His pajamas are on fire! Heck, his pajamas were just about gone, but he really was on fire! The skin was singed and black. Glenn, of course, didn't feel a thing. Glenn, you see, had a disease called Les Compétents. The doctors had a more fancy name for it. He couldn't remember that name now. But what it meant was he couldn't feel pain. Even at this moment, with his arm on fire, he couldn't feel anything. He could sure smell it, though. And it smelled like the rock was cooking. His stomach rolled over. Don't think about it, Glenn told himself. Don't think about it. Oh my god, he looked at it, his arm was on fire. Oh my god, somebody called a doctor or something. My arm is on fire! I'm a child, do something! He slapped at his right arm with his left hand, trying to put out the flame. The burned skin slid off the crusted over cheese on pizza and underneath. Glenn's stomach heaved. It makes the women in here in Cleveland puke. And he ripped the t-shirt away from his face before he threw up on the floor much like the women in Cleveland. His head was spinning. His throat was raw. He had to sit down for a second in his house. Don't panic. Stay low. Find an exit. Maybe Mrs. Prescott was right. The front door, he thought, and lifted his head and blinked, and blinked again to clear his vision. The smoke was pretty bad, even down here, and turned to his left, and there it was, the front door. Not more than 40 feet away in the air, hanging suspended from the rafters. If he climbed the ladder, he could perhaps obtain victory and a guaranteed championship opportunity to cash in at his liking. But more importantly, Glenn thought, I need to live longer than the second grade to cash in that briefcase. Why? Why is the front door standing wide open? Glenn thought. He tried to think of a reason and failed which would be something he better get used to. He looked straight ahead at flaming drywall. He looked to his right and to the staircase, which was now a wall of flame. He started 
to cry like a bitch. Mom, he whispered. Dad! He saw the flames around him and the smoke spreading, and he knew it was supposed to hurt, but it didn't. He felt himself coughing and struggling, but there was no pain. He felt at peace there, at home, among the devastation. His vision blurred again, and all at once he was lying on the floor, looking up at the stairs, and then the stairs were gone, faded to black, and then the wall in front of him started to fade too, and he turned his head and looked down the hall at the front door, his exit, but he wasn't going to make it. None of them were. The fire was going to get them all. Glenn felt helpless, like he was wrestling a match against Triple H. At that second, he heard his mom's voice in his head. Fire, she said. The Kane family curse. No, Glenn thought. Them's crazy talk. And yet, here he was, dying, the fire raging around him. Glenn saw the front door before him again, wide open, and tried one last time to get up. He failed. He burned. And the flame returned! By the time the volunteer firefighters arrived from the community surrounding Marfa, the building was completely engulfed, fire shooting angrily from the roof of the structure. The men quickly sprang into action, whipping the hose off. Yes, I enjoy whipping my hose off as well, firemen. Maybe you should come over later. Anywho, they whipped the hose off the truck, and they turned on the hose. For the next hour, they struggled to tame the fire as the dry, windy night fought for control of the moment. We're not control the moment! There ain't no ain't no in me. As the blaze at the front of the home died down, two firemen, eh, two firefighters, we'll say, waded through the frame and through a window into what used to be the main parlor. The burned remains of the piano faced a barely touched folding chair. The corner bookcase was scarred black, its contents reduced to dusty ash among scorched hardcovers. Glenn would never read his favorite copy of Green Eggs and Ham again. The ceiling drywall had splashed across the staircase. At the bottom of the stairs, a body lay across the floor casually. The firemen immediately ran towards the limp biscuit before them. One whipped off his glove and felt for a pulse, but there was none to be found. The firemen scooped up the victim and shot the half. One, two, no! Kick out. The firemen carried him outdoors where the EMT techs were waiting with a gurney. Christ, it's a kid! God damn it, I told you to stop calling me Christ. My name is Michael Kemp. Michael Kemp was in his first month on the job as an EMT. In the previous 23 days that compromised his career, he had managed to masturbate twice. He had also seen nothing more than a few basic cuts and one broken knuckle. Just a few hours ago, Kemp's colleagues were telling him that Sundays were historically the least active day of the week. It was also the hardest day to obtain Chick-fil-A nuggets. As most people were either at church or at home. And now this Sunday was turning into the worst day anyone had ever seen in Marfa. Why? Why did you say that name? No, no, Bruce, Bruce. Marfa. The town's name is Marfa. It's okay. Easy mistake to make. In over a decade, Kemp, being Sean, Seattle's Supersonics legend, bent over the child's form. It was a boy, 
a very, very badly burned boy who had been very, very naughty. As he, as Sean Kemp found the magazines underneath the boy's bed, protected from the flame. That's how he knew he was a bad boy. He looked at the boy's face. It was untouched by soot. But some of the hair was singed off the top of his scalp. And there was severe blistering on his right cheek and down his neck and down his firm torso. Sean Kemp noticed the boy had not yet developed hair. His torso seemed untouched by the fire, but his right arm and the whole lower half of his body, including the cock, were burned a lot. Kemp's stomach stirred and his heart raced. If no one catches me touching this boy, I might get away with it. Kemp's stomach turned again. It was one thing to see such damage on a television screen or in a book, but on a child, it was downright arousing. I'm sorry, grotesque. The EMT collected himself and felt for a pulse, even though one of the seamen had already done it. There was none. He put his mouth on the boy's lips as if no one was around. He was caught by a supervisor, Johnson, and claimed he was administering CPR. Then he went back to searching for a pulse. Nothing again. He waited a few moments between, before Johnson left and repeated his routine. Hey! His partner put a hand on Sean Kemp's shoulder. Give it up, Brooke. The kid's gone. Sean Kemp ignored him and kept stroking. After a third attempt at CPR, he put his fingers in the boy's neck. Still cold. Damn it! Kemp sighed and pushed away from the body. He clasped his hands together and said a little prayer for Glenn. Forever and ever, you know you're my heart, you little burn shit. I loved you, I touched you, and Johnson caught me. I love you. I say a little prayer for you. At the same time, apologizing to the Lord for touching the child and missing church earlier in the day. Then he stood up. A crowd had gathered around Kemp to watch him do his thing. He hadn't noticed. His partner and half a dozen firefighters. Kid was too badly burned, Kemp said. He didn't make it. The fireman turned away in shame. His partner stepped up next to him. Not your fault, Rook. No one was going to make it out of there. Not in the dead of the night. Not with all the chemicals in that place. That from one of the firefighters who stepped forward now and nodded in the direction of the still smoldering building. It was a funeral home. They got a ton of chemicals in there. Should we just leave the bodies? I mean, it's already a fucking funeral home. All those flammable, flammables, wood frame house, dry night like this, shitty town, poor. Place probably went up in about five minutes or so, if that. We're just lucky we got here in time to stop it and not save anyone. Yeah, Sean Kemp shrugged. I guess I can always return to the Seattle Supersonics, and I guess we're lucky as well. He watched the firemen work for a few minutes, listened to them talk about what might have started the fire. Arson, perhaps, one said. Another one said that that was stupid. Who would want to burn up a funeral home? Someone that owes a lot of money on it and has a decent homeowner's policy, perhaps. Sean Kemp didn't care about all that. He just dreamed of returning to the NBA, and he also wished he could have saved that kid. He turned back to his partner. Let's get back on the road, all right? I guess this thing will just take care of itself. The night's not getting any. Kemp's voice trailed off. His partner was staring in the direction opposite the house, his jaw slightly agape, his eyes wide. Kemp followed his gaze and felt his own jaw drop open in disbelief. The kid, who'd been lying flat on the gurney a moment ago, 
dead to the world, was now sitting up, staring at the two of them. Kemp made a noise, shook his head. No, he said. That's not true. That's not possible! The kid blinked. For the first time, Kemp noticed that the kid had two different colored eyes. One brown, one blue, one purple. There was no pulse. The kid was dead. I, I swear, he said it was okay. The kid was dead! Maybe he was. Kemp's partner shook his head as if to clear away the last of his disbelief. Not anymore, though. And I am too old for this shit. I've only got two weeks to retirement. Prologue. I know flame.